Let's take your copy of God's Word. Join me in Esther chapter 5 this morning. What an incredible testimony from that young man. Esther chapter 5, I wanted you to see that video clip because Brock Purdy is a 24-year-old young man. He is a professing Christian who seems to be very sincere and very devoted in his uh, faith. He was part of fellowship of Christian athletes during his college years. He would often lead Bible studies from what I've read, and he would take different speaking engagements. Tonight, he's going to run onto Allegiant Stadium in front of 200 million viewers, and he is going to lead his team to the Super Bowl as the most unlikely quarterback in NFL history. Brock is the lowest paid quarterback in the league. And the fact that he's even on the field is highly unlikely. Because as the unfolding of the 2022 draft, see he's just been in the league two years, this is his second year. And as the 2022 draft unfolded, if you're not familiar with football terminology, that means the time that uh, the football teams hire different players and they hire them based on uh, the, what they're needing and the talents and the best uh, candidate that's, uh, that's uh, out there on the field. And when the 2022 draft came along, there were 262 players that were drafted that year. 261 of them were drafted before Brock Purdy. He was the last person chosen in the NFL, and it left him with a very um, kind of an indistinguished uh, nickname. You know what his nickname is? Mr. Irrelevant. Think about that for a moment. The last player to be chosen out of 262 players, and they basically say, this final guy, he's just irrelevant. That's not a title that's just been given this year, but throughout many, many years of national football, the guy who is the last guy chosen is determined to be Mr. Irrelevant. A synonym for irrelevant is insignificant, unimportant unnecessary. Maybe there have been times in your life when you have felt those kind of descriptive terms about your own life, that you feel insignificant at your work or, or in your career path. You just feel unimportant and unappreciated. Certainly, I would say Brock Purdy would probably be right there with you. But tonight, 200 million viewers are going to watch Mr. Irrelevant, who just happens to love Jesus, go to the Super Bowl. Suddenly, Mr. Irrelevant is anything but irrelevant. Could it be that God brought Brock Purdy to this kind of national and international stage for such a time as this? Now, the Lord probably doesn't give a hoot about football, but I would say the Lord cares a great deal about using people who will exalt Him and glorify Him. Wouldn't you agree? And here is a young man who seems like he is interested in taking the skill set and the talents that God has given him and not consuming those on his self or his own fame or his own um, self-import, but to glorify God both on the football field and off the football field. I like what Matt Chandler says when he says, when we take the talents that God has given us to glorify him with and instead we glorify ourselves, we are blaspheming. Well, it appears that Brock Purdy has taken all that God has gifted him with at a, at a young age, 24 years old. I said in the first service, think about what you were doing when you were 24. 
Think about what you were thinking about when you were 24. But here's a young man who was so well-spoken. Now listen, I'm not a big 49er football fan. And I'm not really a big chief. I'm not much of a football fan at all anymore. I used to be, but not so much anymore. Uh, but uh, my wife, who is at home still recovering, um, she didn't know uh, that I was going to show you that video clip this morning. She had never seen it. And so she texted me during Sunday school, and she said, I'm pulling for the 49ers tonight. <laughs> So there may be Christians on both teams. I'm sure that there are. But I just think it is interesting how here is a young man who is not ashamed to be vocal about his faith in Christ and how God would take a person from Mr. Irrelevant, the last player chosen, and now he was one of the leading candidates for the most valuable player in the football league this year. I want to talk a little bit uh, this morning about how God has promised in His Word how he takes those who are humble and he exalts them. And how he takes those who are proud and he humbles them. And I think that is seen so very frequently throughout this study in the book of Esther. And if you've been with us at any time at all, you'll recall that a new queen of Persia was underway, the search for this new queen. And they were looking high and low for a new queen. King Xerxes had invited all the women of the Persian Empire to come and display themselves before him. And God just so worked it out that a young Jewish girl, not a Persian lady, but a Jewish woman living outside of her homeland in a foreign land here in Persia. She was Jewish. She was an orphan. She had been adopted into the family of her cousin Mordecai. She would have probably been the least likely person in all of the empire to become the next queen of Persia. She would have certainly been called Miss Irrelevant. But somehow God is able to work it out where he brings her to a position where she is now the queen on the throne. And she is going to use her power and she's going to use her influence to try to thwart the plan that wicked Haman has to exterminate all the Jewish people. We all remember Haman, right, from a couple of weeks ago. Haman is the consummate antagonist in this story. Haman is the man who was an anti-Semite at heart. He had the desire to exterminate every single Jewish person. He had a personal rift with a guy by the name of Mordecai, uh, Esther's cousin. And Mordecai, being a Jewish man, refused to bow down when Haman would walk through the courtyard. Haman was a, was a high-ranking official in the courts, uh, the courts of the king, but Mordecai refused to bow down and to pay homage and respect to him. So Haman is infuriated by that. He devises a scheme where all the Jews can be destroyed. He gets the king to sign off on it. And orders are given to all 127 provinces in the Persian kingdom from India all the way to Ethiopia that every Jew, man, woman, boy, and girl are to be killed. Now there had not been such weeping and lamentation in the lives of the Jewish people since Pharaoh had ordered the death of all the male Hebrew babies some 900 years earlier in Egypt. Well, in chapter number 4, you'll recall from last week, Mordecai convinced Esther to go before the king and to get her to intervene on their behalf. Now, at first, she was not interested in doing this at all. You'll recall in chapter 4, she says, listen, Persian law says that if you go into the king's presence uninvited, that it is certain death. Unless, of course, the king happens to be in a mood where he would receive you and he, he lifts up the scepter as an invitation for you to come in his presence. But if he doesn't do that, 
then it is certain death. And she says, quite honestly, I'm not interested in doing that. And she had to move through this process or this, this transition in her own personal life. And Mordecai says, Esther, if you don't intervene, you may die, I may die. If you don't intervene, then, then you will probably die, your family will probably die, I'll die. But that's not going to stop God from continuing to use the Jewish people to ultimately bring Messiah into the world. The question is, Esther, do you want God to use you to help you to be the one that can, can put together the rescue plans for the Jewish people? So Esther, and he says to her, maybe God brought you here for such a time as this. So Esther, as she is digesting this, she finally comes to the place where she agrees to go before this king without being invited. And she says to Mordecai, go get all the Jews, have them to fast for me for three days. Have them all fast for me. I'm going to fast. My maidens will fast. Then I'll go before the king. And if I perish, I perish. She was willing to do what she believed God wanted her to do as queen. When we talk about God exalting those who are humble and God humbling those who have exalted himself, we look at this case study in Esther, Esther the, the queen of Persia. And I want you to look at a few things that are characteristic about her life that I think we can move from the page and put into our lives and appropriate those to our own personal lives. First of all, I want you to notice how she was able to trust God when the outcome was uncertain. And that is a good word for us. We must learn to trust God even when the outcome is uncertain. Let's begin to move through this narrative in verse 1 of chapter 5. It came to pass on the third day. That third day marks the ending of the fasting. Three days of fasting in chapter number 4. Now that time is coming to a close. In fact, the, the letter or the number 3 or third day in the Scripture oftentimes refers to a time of deliverance. Abraham took his son Isaac up on Mount Moriah on the third day. Uh, Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of the whale. Jesus was in the tomb for three days and three nights. It is a picture of deliverance. And already you can see that God is bringing deliverance for his people down the pipe. So verse 1 says, It came to pass on the third day that Esther put on her royal apparel and stood in the inner court of the king's house. Over against the king's house, and the king sat on his royal throne in the royal house against the gate of the house. And it was so when the king saw Esther the queen standing in the court that she obtained favor in his sight. The king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. So Esther drew near and touched the top of the scepter. So in this story, Esther as she prepares to go before the king, dresses herself in the finest apparel that was, that was given to her as part of the queen's wardrobe. She slips into the inner court of the palace there of King Xerxes. And uh, historians tell us that it would have been a long colonnade or a long marble inlaid floor that would be just a long uh, entryway from the, where the king would sit on the throne to the entrance of the palace proper. And Esther, she just kind of slips inside the palace and she stands at one end of the palace and looks toward King Xerxes at the other end of the palace, not knowing what the outcome would be. 
But she was determined that she was going to trust and she was going to put her faith in God regardless of the outcome. Regardless that she couldn't see what the outcome might be and how uncertain it really was. So there sat on his throne King Xerxes and all the regalia of the Persian king. Imagine how intimidating this must be. I'm going to show you a slide this morning of what archaeologists have uncovered in ancient Iran uh, in uh, Persepolis, to be exact, where uh, the Persian kings would have ruled. This is a Persian king. We don't know for sure that this is Xerxes. This could be Cyrus the Great. It could be Darius. But this is a Persian king in that era. And you could see him sitting on his throne. See, he's holding the golden scepter right here. And then uh, it, is, it is designed to show that the king is absolutely unapproachable. Now, this is only a portion of the larger relief that archaeologists have discovered. Some of them have servants behind the king with swords drawn to say, if, if you come into his presence without his permission, death will be imminent. But let me show you the next slide. I want to zero in on the bottom part. This is, of course, his feet. The bottom part is the stool. That is his footstool. And they so regarded the Persian king, almost as godlike, certainly, that his feet would never even touch the ground. So that's the kind of the intimidating situation that Esther would find herself in as she is wrestling with this idea of approaching the king without his permission. She had no idea what would happen if she stepped in his presence. She just knew that the law said it would be death unless, of course, he decided to show mercy. And she knew there would be no exception because the, because the law of the Medes and the Persians was, was irrevocable. And she's like, unless the king just grants me mercy, then if I perish, I'll perish. Sometimes in life, we cannot see our way clear. Sometimes in life, we live beneath the fog and the cloud of uncertainties. I know that there are times that life is very, very hard. I know that there are times that life appears to be unfair from our perspective. I know that there are times that we don't understand what we have to go through. But I want you to know that the Bible says that God is for us and He's not against us. And that we always have to, to look to Him and trust Him, even in times of uncertainty. I want you to underline the phrase there in verse number 2, that Esther, she obtained favor in his sight. When Xerxes looked down that long corridor and he saw his queen standing there dressed the way she was dressed, then the Bible says that he, he lifted up that golden scepter to her as a way of an invitation to say, Esther, you come on in and you tell me what's on your mind. Well, when I read this chapter, I can't help but to think that the Bible tells us that all of humanity was under a death sentence. Because of Adam and Eve's sin in the Garden of Eden, all of mankind, all of humanity, you and I and the entire world have been born into sin. We are sinners by birth and we are all sinners by choice. And because of that, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. The Bible says sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. The Bible says by one man sin entered into this world and death by sin. You and I and the entire world were born and live under the judgment of the almighty God of this universe. 
Now listen, he is not just a Persian king seated on a man-made throne. But I'm talking about the very God of glory who spoke this world into existence, who picked up the dirt in the Garden of Eden and he formed Adam and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Adam became a living soul. This is the God who says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. And this is the God who we have, the Bible says that our sins have separated us from him. He created us for his glory. He put breath and life in us. He stamped us with his imago Dei, his, his image. But yet the Bible says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. So the only hope you have, the only hope I have, the only hope the world has, is that God would show mercy and favor to us. Now listen, God the Father on his throne in glory looked down from heaven, and he saw you and I at a distance. And the Bible says that God commended or he demonstrated his love for us and that while we were still sinners, that Christ died for us. God did not invite us to come and kind of reach out and touch the top of a golden scepter because he wasn't lifting up a scepter. What God the Father did is he sent his son, the Lord Jesus, into this world. And he lifted him up on the cross of Calvary and hung him between heaven and earth as though rejected by both. Jesus himself said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to me. And God invites all of us, whosoever will, can come. And we come not to a Persian king seated on a man-made throne lifting up a golden scepter, but we come to the almighty God of this universe through his son, the Lord Jesus, who paid the ultimate price on the cross of Calvary to uh, forgive my sin debt and to pay my sin debt and to pay your sin debt. The Bible says in the book of Philippians chapter 2, we call it the Carmen Christi, the hymn of Christ. Listen to Paul's words when he talks about Jesus. He said, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death upon the cross. So if you're listening to me this morning in this auditorium, or you're watching live stream, or you'll watch my television later on, I want you to know that God reaches out to you with His amazing grace and His love and His mercy. And He desires more than anything in life for you to come to Him and to be saved. And He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for you. And if you will accept what Christ has done on the cross as payment for your sins, here's what the Lord does. is He takes the righteousness of Christ, righteousness that we do not have, He takes the righteousness of Christ and He appropriates that to our spiritual bank account. He takes our sinfulness and He lays that upon Christ who knew no sin, who had no sin, but yet the Bible says He became sin for us. And Jesus would pay the ultimate price for everything that all of us have ever done wrong in our lives. I love the hymn writer's words that says, Could we with ink the ocean fill? Or were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Do you know the Bible says that God loves you with an everlasting love, that he has the hair of your head numbered. 
that he has your name engraved on the palm of his hand, and that not a sparrow falls to the ground. And in those clouded days, when you don't know what's happening around you, and life doesn't make sense, and it's like the whole world is caving in on you, you can trust God even when the outcome is uncertain. Esther didn't know how the king was going to react. She didn't know for sure if he would invite her into his presence, but yet she did. And with that, God is going to put her in an incredible place to spare the lives of his people. Now, I just have a feeling. I have a feeling when you and I get to heaven and we meet the Lord face to face and we see all of the glory and we see the big picture and understand fully and finally what God did to redeem us, I think we're going to be there gobsmacked and we're going to say, Lord, I had no idea that you loved me this much. We can't verbalize it. We can't can't wrap our minds around an unconditional love that God doesn't love us because of our performance, because of our goodness, anything about us. But He loves us because that's who He is. And He loves us with an everlasting love that we trust Him even when things are unclear. Secondly, I want you to know we're to trust God when His timing is not your timing. The Bible says that Esther came and touched the top of the king's scepter. And he says to her, you tell me what it is that you want, and I'll give it to you to half of my kingdom. Now, when he says that to her, what you would expect to read is her telling him what she wants. Okay? He invites her into his presence. She comes and touches the top of the scepter, and he says, Esther, tell me. Tell me what you want. Here's what I expect to read. King, Haman has devised this wicked plan where he's going to kill all the Jews. I'm Jewish, so this means I'm going to die and all my family's going to die. And there's going to be a a genocide uh, throughout this uh, land unlike anything that the Jewish people have seen since the Exodus. And I need you to intervene. That's not what she says. Look at what she says in verse number 4. If you're listening, say amen. Esther answered, Well, if it is good to the king, let the king and Haman come this day to the banquet that I have prepared for him. That's not what you expect to read. A banquet? She had been fasting for the last three days. And now she says, well, king, I want you to come to this banquet that I have prepared for you. So apparently she has enlisted the help of her servants and she has prepared a big banquet. And now she says to the king, not a word about Haman because the timing is not there. Not a word about what's going to happen in the, in the, um, in the um, ethnic cleansing. Not a word about that because the timing wasn't quite right. What does she say? I want you to come to this banquet that I have made. So, verse number 5. King says, it sounds like a good idea to me. Verse 5, he says, Calls Haman to make haste that he might do as Esther has said. So the king and Haman came to the banquet that Esther had prepared. Now, think about it for a moment. Here is this little or this young Jewish woman whom at one time we would say was Mrs. Irrelevant, a Jewish lady, uh, an orphan lady. Her parents had died. She was living outside of her homeland. She was living in a, in, in a, in a culture that did not know the one true God of Israel. And on one hand, here she is as Mrs. Irrelevant, But on the other hand, she's now been placed in a position by God where she's anything but irrelevant. 
On one hand, she was afraid that her head might be severed from her body by the servant's sword. But on the other hand, now she has the king, King Xerxes, who I saw you, you saw the picture on the, on the screen, now eating out of her hand. And it just shows us how God is working all of this out to get Esther in the right place at just the right time. She doesn't run ahead of the king. She doesn't, she doesn't get impatient. But now listen, she's waiting, and she's waiting, and she's waiting. And she says to the king, here's what I want you to do. Would you come to this special banquet that I have prepared for you? So, verse 7. He agrees. He says that he's coming. Verse number 6, they go to the banquet. The king said to Esther at the banquet of wine, What is your petition? And it'll be granted to you. And what is your request even to the half of my kingdom? And then answered Esther and said, My petition and my request is... Now let's stop right there. What do you expect to read? That you stop Haman from doing what he's going to do. That's not what you read. You know what you read? She invites him to another banquet, the second banquet. And she's not telling him, I said in the first service this this morning, ladies, just tell us what you want us to know. That we can't read your minds. We don't know what you're thinking. And she's waiting, and she's waiting. So she says, you come to this banquet, he comes. And that at that banquet, banquet, he says, what do you want? And she says, I want you to come to another banquet that I'm making tomorrow, verse 8. And if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my petition, to perform my request, let the king and Haman come to the banquet that I shall prepare for them, and I will do tomorrow as the king said. Now, I wonder why she didn't tell him up front what she was wanting. Some Bible scholars tell us because they think she may have been losing her nerve. I don't necessarily see that because he's already told her that he would give her half of his kingdom. Here's what I think, what I believe is happening. If she is sensing something that the timing is just not right. Maybe she went into that first banquet ready to tell him, but something in her spirit was a check where she thought the timing is just not God's timing yet. So she waits. And she waits. And she waits. And she is trusting God even when her timing is not his timing. I read about a prisoner on death row who believed that he would be deprived of one hour of life if he were executed on daylight savings time. So he appealed to the warden to give him that extra hour from daylight savings time because every hour would be precious. Every moment would be sacred. And Esther here, she's thinking, at this first banquet, it's just not the right time. The next banquet, it's just not the right time. And it's not that I don't think she's trying to get her nerve up. I think what she's doing is she's recognizing, well, I've got a schedule, but God doesn't work on my schedule. And it's just not His time. So she invites him to this second banquet. And then at this second banquet, not only does Xerxes and Haman appear, but then it kind of leads us to this final point that I want to leave with you today when we talk about how God exalts those who humble themselves and humbles those who exalt themselves. We see how he has exalted Esther, this young girl who would be Mrs. Irrelevant, 
to the queen of Persia. She now has the king's ear. She's in a position where she can help spare the lives of the Jewish people. And God has indeed taken her from Mrs. Irrelevant to very relevant. All right? Well, I want us to see finally, not only do we trust God in times that are uncertain, and we trust God when his timing is not our timing, but also I want you to note that we're to trust God even when it seems like the wicked are in control and the wicked have the power. I don't know about you, but when I look at current events and I look at our world today and I look at uh, our country today, it's hard not to think that the devil doesn't have control, isn't it? I mean, we see immorality glorified and godliness ridiculed. We see immorality glamorized on television, and we see what's right is painted wrong, and what's wrong is seems to be painted right. And it seems like the whole world is just upside down, like the devil is winning. But listen, he just, he's just here for a season, isn't he? And, all, and one of these days, it's not going to be the way it is right now. But nonetheless, I want you to know, we trust God even when it seems like the wicked are having their way. Let me show you. Look in verse number 9. Now, this is Haman, the antagonist. When he gets invited to these banquets, notice what he said. Then went Haman forth that day joyful with a glad heart. I mean, he couldn't have been more thrilled. He relished in the fact that he is now the king's and the queen's guest. No one else in the entire Persian empire could have put that on their resume. I've been invited not to just one banquet, but two banquets of the king and the queen. I can see he put that on his LinkedIn account. He put that on his Twitter feed. He took the pictures of being at the king's banquet. He posted it on his Facebook page and his social media page. And he wanted everybody to know how the king had invited him to be part of this special time. And he leaves that banquet, the Bible says, feeling great, joyful, with a glad heart. But guess who he runs into right as he begins to walk across the courtyard? Notice but, verse 9. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, he stood not up nor moved for him. He was full of indignation from Mordecai. He went from being glad to being sad to being mad in warp speed. Because it was the ultimate final insult to Haman. Here's what he's thinking. You know, I've been invited here to sit with the king and the queen, and he must really think something of me to invite me of this, to this. And he comes out of that, that banquet, and there, lo and behold, is this stubborn Jewish guy who refuses to bow to king or to the prime minister, Haman. And Haman is infuriated by the disrespect, and he just can't believe it. But he basically says, listen, I'm not going to let this Jewish guy ruin my day. I'll deal with him later. Verse number 10. Nevertheless, Haman refrained himself, and when he came home, he sent and called for his friends and Zeresh, his wife, and he told them all. Now listen, he told them, that's for sure. He told them this story. He told them how he'd be the guest of honor at the queen and king's banquet. He told them how good everything was and how good he must have been. Notice he says, Haman told them the glory of his riches, the multitude of his children, all the things that the king's had, king had promoted him and how he had advanced him above the princess and the servant of the king. He is just dripping with pride and arrogance. Can't you see that? And remember, he was one of the most powerful men in the Persian Empire at this time. 
And he calls together his friends, and one of the first things he does is he opens up his stock portfolio, and he says, I want to show you what I'm worth. Shows them all of his riches. And then he says, I want you to see all of my family, all of my children. Chapter 9 says he has 10 kids. Some extracurricular or, or um, uh, extra-biblical sources say that he could have had up in the hundreds of children. We don't know that for sure. But he was proud of, his, of what he'd been able to accomplish. And he was proud of his many, many children. He was proud of his wealth. And the Bible says, and the things that the king had promoted him. So he is just dripping with pride. Probably a good case study for pride as he rehearses his accolades. Probably a sign of insecurity, but he rubs it in. If you'll notice verse 12, Haman said, moreover, yea, look at this now, Esther, and, uh, Esther the queen did let no man come in with the king under the banquet that she prepared but me. And on tomorrow, I'm invited to her also with the king. Oh, he's just bragging, isn't he? He's just kind of flaunting his net worth, his family. He crows about his promotions, and he's so impressed with himself how much the king admires him. And listen, he is just filled with hot air, and he's become so self-absorbed. You remember uh, Narcissus in, uh, in Greek mythology? This young man who was so handsome that when he finally saw his reflection in a pool of water, he was, he was just catatonic. He was, trans, he, he was just um, transfixed on his own reflection, and he couldn't draw himself away from that. And he became so self-absorbed that he shut everybody else out of his life, and suddenly it all became about him. And he sat there and watched his reflection in the pool of water until ultimately he starved to death. And here was Haman. He was shutting everybody else out because he was singing that old song, that's enough about you, let's talk about me. And that's what he was doing as he begins to rehearse all of his accomplishments and all that he'd been able to do. And um, one would think that if he had everything in life that a person says you can have to be, make you happy, that he would be satisfied, but that's not the case. There's one thing that he does not have that he wants. And because he doesn't have it, it spoils what he does have. Let me show you. Uh, he says, um, yet all of this, in verse 13, avails me nothing. I don't care about the money. I don't care about the promotions. What does he care about? That I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. This is a consequence of the the fall of humanity. That he is looking at this Jewish man who refuses to bow, and though Haman has got everything a man could want, he is fixated on the one thing that he cannot have, and he says, I don't care about everything else I do have. I'm just mad that this one Jewish man will not bow in my presence. You see, we are much more like Haman than we'd like to admit. Probably our favorite person is ourself. But listen to what Jesus says. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Philippians 2 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, and count others more significant than yourself. Often Jesus talked about denying self. But listen, denying self is the hardest thing in life. 
Denying self is the hardest thing in life. It's not about circumstances, situations, or other people that cause us the most problems. It is usually self. I, I told him in the first service this morning the story that I've told you a hundred times, but I've been your pastor a long time, and it's a funny story, and I want to hear it again myself, so I'm going to tell it to you, okay? It's like the two construction workers who go to work on the job, and the guy opens his lunchbox, and he begins to lament the fact that he's got bologna for lunch, and he says, bologna again, bologna again. This is the third time this week I've had bologna for lunch, and his friend said, tell your wife to pack you something different. And the guy said, my wife, he said, I pack my own lunch. <laughs> Thank y'all. Y'all laugh every time I tell you that, and I've told you that so many times. But isn't it true that most of the baloney in our lives, we put it there ourselves? Most of the baloney that we have to deal with is from bad decisions that we've made, or we failed to do the good things that God would want us to do and ask us to do. And here is Haman. He is in utter control, utmost control. He is pulling the strings. He is working. And now he's like, all of this stuff that I have, what does it matter if I can't get this one Jewish man to bow down and worship me? And he is so filled with pride. And pride always divides. Pride always creates conflict and difficulty. But yet, that's where he is. And then he gets some very unspiritual advice from his wife, and his friends, and we're going to bring this to a close. Verse 14. Then Zeresh, his wife, and all of his friends said to him, Well, then let a gallows be made 75 feet high, and tomorrow speak to the king that Mordecai may be hanged, and then go merrily with the king to the banquet, and the thing pleased Haman, and he calls the gallows to be made. Now listen, while Esther is planning a banquet, Haman is planning an execution. While, while Esther is working to get the king and Haman uh, all taken care of in this, in this feast or in this banquet, Haman is working on the other end to try to get Mordecai murdered. And his wife says, just build a gallows for him. What comes to your mind when you think about a gallows? Most translations use the word gallows. I preach from the King James usually, and it says gallows. Some translations use the word pole. When I think about a gallows, I think about the old Wild West, right, where you have the noose and you're on the platform, there's a trap door, and, and then you, you meet your demise uh, that way with a noose around your neck. For the Persian kingdom, it is said that that was not the kind of gallows that they were discussing here, but it would have actually been just a singular pole Sharpened at the top, 75 feet tall, placed in a socket on the earth or on a platform, and that the executed individual would literally be impaled on that pole for everybody to see. Now, that's, that's painful stuff to think about that, isn't it? But 75 feet high, and that was the plan of Haman, was to get Mordecai where he would be executed on this pole and everybody around could see that you don't disrespect Haman by not bowing in his presence. When Jesus came into the world, the Roman Empire was in control, and they took this Persian mode of capital punishment, this death on a pole, and added another member, uh, or a horizontal member, and began to drive nails into the hands and the feet of the ones who were executed. And that's the death that Jesus would die. 
He came into this world as a little baby, and the world saw him as infant irrelevant. Because who cares about a little baby born in a barn in Bethlehem? He grew up his life walking the streets of Galilee and doing nothing but good, healing the sick and raising the dead and feeding the hungry. But yet the world would look at the Lord Jesus as Mr. Irrelevant and nail him to the cross of Calvary. They parted his raiment, gambled for his clothing, put a crown of thorns on his head. And his last words that Jesus uttered was, it is finished. And the Bible says they sat down by the cross and they watched him and they wagged their heads at him. Mr. Irrelevant. That was Good Friday, but I'll tell you what. On Easter Sunday, Mr. Irrelevant was anything but irrelevant. Amen? He came out of that grave in resurrected power. He conquered death. He conquered hell. He conquered the grave. And he offers eternal life to whosoever will can come. And I'm thankful for that, that God would lift up his son on the cross and invite us to come into his presence and to, to come to the foot of the cross and to invite Jesus to be our Savior and our Lord. Now, we're not finished with the Esther story. I'm just out of time. And you're going to have to look at chapter 6 next Sunday when we see what happens in this incredible narrative. But what I want you to wake, walk away from tonight or today is I have no idea who will win the Super Bowl. I have no idea uh, Brock Purdy's commitment for Christ other than what you saw on the, on the video today. I just think it's a fascinating how when a young man surrenders himself to the Lord, God gives him a platform to be used. And God wants to use you. If you'll humble yourself before God, he will exalt you. He will exalt you in a way where people will look and say, why him or why her? There's nothing special. No, there's nothing special about any of us. It's all about him. Amen.